Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. You can find it on page 920 in your pew Bible. This is God's Word to us. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And the grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. O Lord, it is your word that said, blessed are the hungry now, for they shall be satisfied. May that be the cry of our heart that we, O Lord, are hungry and that you might feed us from the truth of your word. And we ask it in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. In this narrative account that Luke gives, I wonder, as you hear it, how would you summarize in one sentence this story? I had a seminary professor who used to talk about preaching, and he would say, you need a midnight message. 
And what he meant by that was simply, if you were asleep and someone woke you up at midnight, what would be your summary of your sermon? Many people have had unique titles and summaries for this passage. The Great Escape, Death and Deliverance, God Answers Prayer, but do you believe Him? I titled it this morning, Only a Prayer Meeting. Now, I did not come up with that title. That's actually a title of a book. Charles Hattie and Spurgeon wrote a book entitled, Only a Prayer Meeting. And the contents of it has to do a lot with his teachings and his preaching and lectures on prayer. But in the introduction, this is what he says. He's, he's considering a group of people who have come together to pray. And this is how he begins. What a company we have here tonight. It fills my heart with gladness and my eyes with tears of joy to see so many hundreds of persons gathered together at what is sometimes wickedly described as only a prayer meeting. It is good for us to draw nigh unto God in prayer, and especially good to make up a great congregation for such a purpose. We have attended little prayer meetings of four or five, and we have been glad to be there, for we had the promise of our Lord's presence But our minds are grieved to see so little attention given to united prayer by many of our churches. He looks out and he sees a gathering of hundreds, as he says, and he's overwhelmed with joy because the people of God have come together to unite their hearts and their voice in prayer. Only a prayer meeting. That's their purpose together, is to pray unto the Lord. What good or how important is a prayer meeting? I wonder how you might answer that question this morning. Luke is a a fantastic historian. But don't forget that Luke's not only a diligent historian, he's a great theologian. In his writing of the gospel of Luke and even of Acts, he yes, he gives you an orderly account, but he does not fail to provide fundamental principles of the Christian life and one that you cannot miss, especially in the book of Acts, is that of prayer. And he has been saying it over and over and over again. Acts chapter 1, the people of God are together and Jesus meets with his disciples. He ascends into heaven and they go and they meet for prayer. Acts chapter 2, we don't know how long from Acts 1 to Acts 2 specifically, but there's enough time that the church is now described as a people in a place that is devoted to prayer. Acts chapter 4, you've got Peter and John who've been sharing the gospel and they have been beaten and flogged and told not to preach the good news. And what are they doing? Well, they come back to a people and what what are those people doing? Well, they're praying. And then what happens in this prayer meeting? They do not ask that God would stop. They actually ask that God would increase, increase the proclamation of the gospel. You keep reading, and then you get to Acts chapter 6, 
or deacons, the office of deacon, you hear about it, but, but why? It's because the apostles cannot neglect the preaching of the word and the prayers. And in fact, the great conversion of Saul. Do you remember how God tells Ananias that you will know who Saul is, you will find him, and he will be in prayer? You see, the practice is the people of God come and they pray and they pray and they pray. Only a prayer meeting. And that's what Luke is describing here, isn't it? I want you to see it in in three points or perhaps you could say three scenes. What are the three aspects of this prayer meeting? You get a little bit of a context. He tells you what's happening right before this prayer meeting. He's going to tell you a little bit about what happens at the prayer meeting. And he's going to demonstrate how prayer works. What is the result of this prayer meeting? If you look in the first four verses, Luke begins by giving you a historical marker, a time marker. He says, about that time, Herod the king. This is roughly AD 41 to 44. And the reason that is important is because when you read King Herod in your Bible, you might be tempted to think it's always referring to the same person. And that's not true. There are at least three different King Herods in your Bible. There is Herod the Great. You know him as the one who sent forth the killing of the babies in Bethlehem. He dies and has three children, and he splits up his kingdom amongst these three children. And one of them becomes the one who is the Herod in which Jesus is on trial and crucified before But the one that we see here this morning is neither one of those. It's the grandson or the nephew of him. And this one is Herod Antipas. What is he doing? Well, he's carrying on the family business, isn't he? He hates Jesus. He hates Jesus. He hates people who follow Jesus. What can you learn about this Herod just by Luke's account? He doesn't just hate followers. He's a man pleaser. He's willing to do whatever it takes for the sake of approval of people and even Jews, which tells you something about the current cultural climate, that Jews still are not getting along with Christians, even as Christ is ascended. He is no longer here. The people of God are still under attack. This Herod hates Christians. And Luke says he kills James by the sword. That's not a polite killing. That is a execution style, a decapitation of James. Now I want you to imagine the people who would have received this account, how shocking this would have been. They have been receiving such great news of the gospel and its work. And all of a sudden they hear James was executed. It's unexpected. And yet I think there's a principle. A prepared church. It's a praying church. I think that's what Luke is demonstrating here in the context. When times are good, things of unexpected natures happen. But how are you to be prepared for the unexpected? 
You need to be a Christian in a church who prays. That's what it means to be prepared for the unexpected. Because consider the reality of what Lucas said. He gives you no details of this death. He gives you very little drama. And yet in seven to 10 words, he has just said a founding leader of the church has died. It's a drastically different tactic that has been used. Up to this point, no apostle has died by the hands of the enemy. Sure, we've seen the martyrdom of Stephen, but he was not an apostle. Yes, the apostles have been beaten and flogged, but never executed. Sure, the church has been greatly persecuted, but never to this point. What is Luke suggesting in these simple words? I think he's providing a great deal of instruction. I think he's trying to let us know that, yes, in simple terms, that might be how you understand it. It's not how you experience it. Although simply stated, how difficult of an experience, this short sentence of instruction, what would the church think? How could they respond when they hear that a fellow brother, a leader of the church, is dead? James. James is dead. Who is James? There's at least three different James in the Bible. You've got James, the half-brother of Jesus. That's not this one. You have James, the son of Alphaeus. That's not this one. He will be later mentioned in this chapter. This is James, the son of Zebedee. He's that special James that you see over and over in the Gospels. He's part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. This is James who has seen incredible miracles, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. This is James who was invited by the Lord Jesus up to the mountain of transfiguration. This is James who has been requested by his king to pray for him on the night that Jesus would be seized. This is James whose mother would go to Jesus and ask for an eternal glorious throne, a spot of honor before him. And this is James, the only recorded death in the scriptures of an apostle. What would they have thought? How could they have heard this news? How would you have heard it? James, he has such a bright future ahead of him. Look at how close he followed Jesus, how much he loved Jesus, how much time he spent with Jesus, how zealous he was, how passionate he was. You know, James, he most likely was in his mid-30s. He was the young, attractive assistant pastor. Hasn't eclipsed 40. Not on the way downhill. This is James. Consider God what you would have done through his life 
How incredible the ministry that James could have had. And yet Luke just says, he died. There's no drama. Very little details. It's a hard lesson. But a good one. One apostle is rescued in this story and one dies. And what do you and I make of that? How do you understand the providence of God? I'll tell you. Every moment of your life is always at his mercy. Some of you are tempted to read this and go, yes, of course, everyone is expendable. Don't go there. That might be true, but I do not think that's what Luke is saying here. He's not trying to show you how people are expendable. He's trying to demonstrate the kingdom of God is not growing because James was involved. It's growing because God is involved. It's the involvement of God in his church that makes it grow. Not you, not me, and not even James. Because James has died. It's a hard truth. And yet, a good one. It was an opportunity for this church to wrestle with the question, do we really believe that God is sovereign? Is that a profession or a confession? Many of you know our children, for better or for worse. We've named them specifically. And one of the things that my wife has done to help is in each of their rooms, we have a big picture. It's framed with a picture of whom they were named after. And so either it's a picture of that person or something that represents that person. And so in Patton's room, there's a picture of the autobiography of John Patton. John Patton, he's a missionary to the New Hebrides. I want you to hear a little account of John Patton. He, with his wife, packed all their things in a coffin. That's what they did back then. They, they did not assume they would make it home. And so they packed all of their things in a coffin. They sent sail and they arrived at Tana, the island, in 1858. Roughly three months after being there, they had their first son and only son. Because in the next month and a half, John Patton would lose his wife and his son. And this is what he said in his diary. This is strength. This is peace to feel in entering on every day that all its duties and trials have been committed to the Lord Jesus, that come what may, he will use us for his own glory and our real good. That's a challenge, isn't it? Do you merely profess that God is sovereign? Or is that the confession through your life when persecution comes? Many of you might not have experienced it. You will. What does your life say when the times are darkest? Is God, in fact, in control? Or is it you? Or do you have those thoughts in which you say, God's made a mistake, but you need to stop right there because you know better than that, don't you? There is no error in the plan and purpose of God. 
There is no one person, no one ruler, or no one thing that ever can take or go around or get above God. And yet, how do you wrestle with situations that are so hard and so dark? Does your life demonstrate the fact that God is sovereign? James has died, but Peter is in prison. And according to Jewish practice and law, you cannot sentence or try anyone during Passover. And so Peter's in prison. Now, what's happening at this prayer meeting? There's almost like a stop there. Peter's in prison, and the people of God, they gather together to pray. Peter isn't with them, and he's not in a correctional facility. He's in, he's in a maximum security Guantanamo Bay prison. He has soldiers chained to his body all day and night long. There is no moment in which Peter is ever, ever alone. It's a good thing he wasn't an introvert. He's always bound by soldiers. He's got two with him, and then there are two at the gate. There are three gates between him and the outside world, and there are soldiers always watching on a rotation basis. And you have to ask yourself, why? It's Peter. Was he violent? Was he some notorious criminal? No. He was a humble servant of God and yet a great threat to the world. Not because it was Peter, but because of the one who was in Peter. You see, they knew that. Peter had a rap sheet. This is not his first time in prison. And he has a really good experience of prison, unlike most people, and we're thankful for that. Peter goes to prison twice. And what happens each time? He's let out. He escapes. And you could imagine what King Herod is thinking. The great escape artist is in prison. We need to keep our watch on him. But I think Luke is trying to tip you and I off to something because he says that Peter is in prison. You could ask, why did Peter not get executed like James? And I think that was the intent of King Herod. But because he's a man pleaser and Passover is going on, Peter has to stay a few nights in prison. But why do you and I need to know something about Passover? Because that would have been something that said to the people, hey, pay attention here. What happens at Passover? You remember, don't you? It's the institution of it in Exodus chapter 12 when God tells Moses, I want my people to, set, to have this meal. It's going to be a picture of what I'm about to do. There's a twofold purpose. I'm going to pass over you, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to judge someone else. And then what takes place in Exodus 13, 14? God leads his people out of Egypt and he judges the kingdom of darkness by judging Pharaoh. What's the point? God is a great deliverer. Luke is just telling you there is a new Egypt. His name is King Herod, but there is the same God. The God of the old is the same God in the new, and he rescues people. 
And there aren't places in which you and I can go or think of that God cannot and does not and will not rescue for his own glory. Even under a constant guard watch, God enters in and rescues. We've got a group of people praying together and Peter is in prison. And we need to be reminded about these people who are praying because this is not a picture of their last resort efforts. This is the priority practice of this church. They get together and pray because they believe that God is sovereign. And you would not have faulted them, would you? If Luke would have said, Peter's in prison, and so the church scattered. They decided to find a way to a secret place. They went underground. They had underground church. They had hidden church. Nobody would have been upset with them. It would have been an understandable thing when your life and your church's life is under threat. Your leader is in prison planning to be executed, and so you run. But is that what Luke tells you? This church isn't hiding. They're at Mary's house. Now you see that and you go, well, does everyone know where Mary's house is? Yes, Everyone knows where Mary's house is. Why? Because you read in Acts chapter one and you figure out what took place there. Well, when they prayed, do you remember what Luke told you? That was 120 people strong. So that was not your living room. Mary seemed to be doing okay. All right, it wasn't in the backwoods. People knew where Mary's house was. If you knew, guess who else knew? They could have stormed that house if they wanted They could have raided it. The people of God did not leave in defeat. They prayed because they depend on God. And they're together as they always are, praying. And they're praying. And they're praying. It was not only a prayer meeting. Maybe we could call it our practical prayer meeting. This is what we do This is not a meeting for the spiritual giants and those whom are zealous for God. This is a place and a meeting for people who love God and depend on him, who want to pray because the church finds her power in prayer. One pastor said it this way, the arteries of the church are prayer. That is where she is sustained and life-giving power is granted to her. And I do not mean that in a general way because I could imagine right this moment how many of you are hearing my voice. That sounds good and we have a prayer meeting, but you're not there. And that's a problem. And if I just offended you, good. Because this is not only a prayer meeting. These people believe in God to do things that only God can do and they come together and they pray. And I'm talking to you. Do you believe that? Do you come to a prayer meeting believing that God hears and God answers because you trust him so. These people believe in him. 
Spurgeon in that book went on to say this, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. What do you believe about prayer? Don't, don't tell me something about providence and prayer and it provide for you an excuse of laziness. No, these people believed in providence. Do you want to tell me that Peter didn't believe in providence? That Peter didn't believe in sovereignty as he preaches to the God or to the people about God saying, it's God who killed his son, yet you wicked men put your hand to it? Peter didn't know something of sovereignty? Peter knew much of sovereignty and it led him to pray. That's what we need to hear. We need to be a people who pray and we do so earnestly. That word earnest that you found in verse five, it's got a picture. It's the picture of it's, it's stretching like a muscle. Do you and I pray in such a way that it stretches your soul to the Lord? That this cannot happen unless God works. Come to a prayer meeting. They had many gathered. I had an interesting prayer request. This week, I began praying as I was studying this passage. We have our Wednesday night gathering. If you didn't know we had a prayer meeting, it's probably good to tell you about it now. It's at 6.45 on Wednesday nights, but we have a dinner at 5.30. This has been my daily prayer this week. I certainly hope we run out of food. Not because we failed to prepare for many, but because we underprepared because many more came. We love Miss Jenny. I want her to be red in her face on Wednesday when she says we're out of food. But she's going to prepare more this week because I just told you to come. Do you have such a hunger for a prayer meeting that many are gathered and they want to pray? Prayer works. Prayer works. I think many of you probably know that. What's happening in this story? Peter's asleep. That's an easy detail to skip over. Peter is asleep. And he knows exactly what is coming. He is going to be killed. How would you enter that night? The eve of your death. How would you be at rest? And by the way, he didn't just like quickly doze off. This man is unconsciously knocked out. Why? Because the angel has to give him step-by-step instructions of how to get dressed. He pokes Peter in the side. And then it's like, getting your children out of bed, except for ours. They, man, they shoot out. But many of you whom we are jealous of, you have to beg your kids to get out of bed and then tell them, open your eyes, put your socks on, put your shoes on. This is what Peter's experiencing. And yet, isn't it so marvelous? Because this is the same Peter who went to Jesus in a boat and said, don't you care that we're about to die? And what is Jesus doing? He is asleep. You see, friends, when you trust in the sovereignty of God, you can be at rest with any circumstance because it's not you. It's all of him. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a masterful preacher. He has three sermons on just verse five. And uh, one of the things that he says I find so helpful is this. This is the gospel. It is God's message coming in when nothing else can change the situation. It matters not what your situation may be, however dark, however black, however tight your bonds, however imprisoned and fettered you may be. If God wills your deliverance, it can be done and it will be done. Prison cells and wards and chains and iron gates, they are nothing to the God who made the world and sustains everything by his power. It's why we pray, because God's will will be done, and we ask him to accomplish such a thing. Do not use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for why not to pray. I had permission to share a story. I'll keep the names out, but there, there's a family in our church who has an elderly friend And the words that I received were, she is moments away or in the last minutes of her life. She wanted to be taken off all forms of aid. And so they brought in her pastor. They sang. They read scripture. And they prayed. And they went home having said goodbye until the next morning when they walked in and she was sitting up. Prayer works. It rescues people, not only in hospital beds, but in prison cells, in prison hearts. Your dark heart can be made alive. And many of you have experienced that because people have prayed for you. It works Do not use sovereignty as your lazy, paralyzed excuse for why you will not pray. Yes, God decrees all things. He decreed the end and he decrees the means to the end. And guess what? In his mercy, he has decreed that if you will pray, he will answer Do not believe that the lack of answer is God not doing something. God is always doing something, even if it's not what you want that something to be. Do you believe in him that he hears you and he answers you? It gives you hope. It gives you confidence. It gives you certainty and it moves you to pray. With one of our children, we're reading the Pilgrim's Progress book. And the other night, we were reading about the giant despair. Christian and his friend Hopeful, they're imprisoned. The giant can't actually kill them. But he assumes that they will kill themselves. And so Christian and Hopeful are in this conversation and they're saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to get out? We have no hope. And they agreed to do something. And that was they agreed to pray. And as they prayed, this is how Christian responds. What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I might instead walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that I believe will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Friends, if you're in Christ, 
You have a key called promise and it unlocks any room in doubting castle. And so what happens? These people are praying. Peter is let out of prison by an angel, thinking it a dream, all until he can say, no, this is of the Lord. And he comes to Mary's house. This is like a movie scene. He knocks on the door. And you can imagine Peter, right? I'm not sure if they know that I'm out yet. So it's probably a very hurried but silent knock. Rhoda hears Peter's voice. Overwhelmed in excitement, invites him in? No. She's like a little child. She leaves and goes and tells everybody. And you could imagine what it's like to be Peter. I had a very clear experience, not because my life was on the line. It felt that way. I had one of my children not sleep well at a relative's house over Thanksgiving, not this past Thanksgiving. And I thought, I'm gonna wake up the whole house. We're gonna have a big problem. So I took him in my car and I drove around for two and a half hours from 3.30 to 6 a.m. It's terrible. And it was just one strip. You just drove down and back. And at one point, I saw the light. Dunkin' Donuts was open. <laughs> and you think I'm kidding. So I go to the drive-thru. I crack the window and drive through people. They're, they're heartless. They just like yell at you. What do you want? Coffee? A whisper? I don't want him to wake up. Please be quiet. You can imagine Peter. Are they on their way? Rhoda, let me in. A few more knocks. And the people of God couldn't even believe God to answer their prayers. Not only could they not believe that he would answer them at all, let alone so fast. We've been asking for something. Not only does he do it, he's already been in the process of doing it. And he brings Peter to them. God worked so much that the church itself could not believe it. It's that, it's that picture of what Paul is saying. God can do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. Do you believe that? Do you pray like that? That God can do immeasurably more? You know, if you're sitting here this morning and saying, I'm not sure that's true, there might be three reasons why. Simply because the scriptures tell us why God doesn't answer certain prayers. One is if you have unconfessed sin, Psalm 66, it tells you God does not answer it. If you're not earnest, you get the parable of the persistent widow. Pray. Sometimes you know why God doesn't answer prayer? Because you're too vague. And you don't ask him for something specific. God, save Joe. Save my children. God, work in this place or in that way. I want to encourage you. At the very end of your Bible, John in the book of Revelation, very end, chapter 21, there's one more chapter. He, he's got a vision. And in chapter 21, he sees this vision and it's the new heavens and the new earth. It's coming down. The old is passing away. And he recognizes his king, that is Christ, is coming. And he says to us, 
What I saw is there's no more pain. There's no crying. There's no mourning. There's no tears. It's beautiful. You're loving it. And then John says he sees something else. He doesn't just see the people who are with God. He sees those who aren't. And he calls them cowardly. And do you know what he says the chief characteristic of the cowardly is? It's faithless. And yes, I understand that there is a definition of faithless that says you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore you are not saved. How does faithlessness express itself? In prayerlessness. Do not be a prayerless Christian. And by God's mercy, we will not be a prayerless church may we know something special of having many gather to pray only at a prayer meeting. And do not think it's not important because God changes the world on behalf of simple prayers like yours and mine. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are that the omnipotent, the omniscient, the omnipresent God inclines his ears to wicked, sinful, feeble people like ourselves. And that the psalmist over and over and over are calling for your ear and calling for your answer. May we be a people who so love Jesus that we are constantly moved to pray. We recognize special seasons of prayer for sure, but we want to be a church that has a priority of corporate prayer. That when people think of Smyrna Presbyterian Church, what they say are many are gathered to pray. Help us, O oh Lord, to be found as those who are faithful because we are those who are prayerful. We trust you, we lean on you, and we love you. And all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.